Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org. Well, good morning. We are in uh, John chapter 18 this morning. We're continuing on our uh, season of Lent, which is looking uh, at all of the events that are leading up to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So uh, today we're going to be in John 18, looking at the arrest of Jesus. Last week, we were looking at Jesus praying in the garden with his disciples. And so this is immediately following uh, Jesus being uh, in the garden with his disciples so we're in John 18, verses 1 through 11, and this is Jesus' uh, arrest. It says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have, not, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the word of the Lord. All of the other gospels except for John uh, then make the comment that it was at this moment then that all of the other disciples scattered and abandoned Jesus. And that's going to be important for us to understand in this narrative as well. Um, as Americans, we love freedom, right? We love our freedom. We threw off the control of the crown. We took their silly tea and we dumped it into the ocean and we invented God's drink, which is called coffee. Yeah. <laughs> well, we didn't invent coffee, but... Uh, but seriously, part of the American way has always been to be suspicious of those that control us. That's why we have checks and balances built into our government, right? That's why when we think of control, we tend to get uncomfortable with the idea of being controlled. When we, when we see, see it in politics, when we look at our politicians, right? Politicians have never really been our favorite people, never. Uh, when we think even today in, a, in kind of a modern sense, when we look at companies like social media companies, we start to get a little bit uncomfortable with the levels of control that Google or Facebook or Meta, right? We get a little bit uncomfortable with the control that they have. In fact, right now, Meta is facing uh, dozens and dozens of lawsuits. More than 40 states currently right now are suing Meta for circumventing parental rights 
and uh, marketing to uh, children, trying to control children. Um, and so 40 states have said, this is too much control. These social media con- companies have gotten out of control in the way in which they're trying to control our kids. They're circumventing parental rights. We've got to step in and, and regulate these companies, right? So as Americans, we have this instinctual understanding that absolute control corrupts. And we, we don't trust control because we don't trust the heart's of the people that leverage control against us. I could stand up here and give you example after example of, and you guys know them, right, of of corporations and politicians and institutions and churches and pastors that have leveraged control in ways that benefit them at the expense of others. That's how it is in our world. That's what control is used for, to divide and to conquer, uh, to, to demonstrate the survival of the fittest in the most ruthless ways. We have seen control so abused by humankind that we've grown very skeptical of it, very cynical of it, very pessimistic. Um, It has a negative connotation in our minds. But what if, what if we were to find someone who had total control, absolute control, but also manifested total love? What if, what if we found someone that had total control, but they never used it to abuse or for their own good? They, they used that, this total control always as an expression of total love, always for the good and the blessing of others. And that is what we encounter in Jesus here today in this text. We see a Jesus who is beginning to demonstrate total control and total love in one person. He's in total control. The author, uh, John, goes out of his way, and I'm going to give you some examples, but the author, John, uh, as he's accounting these or recounting these events, goes out of his way to show us this total control and total love. So we know right off in verse 4, it says that Jesus, knowing all of these things, right, that, that all the things that would happen to him, Jesus knew all of the things that would happen to him. It's not like when Judas shows up with a band of soldiers, Jesus is like, Judas? What? How could this happen? I'm so caught off guard. I didn't see this coming. Well, Well, what's going on? No, he knows exactly what's going on. Jesus is in total control. Even Jesus's question when he asks them, whom are you seeking? It's a setup. Right? It's a setup because he's revealing something even in the way in which he answers. Whom are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Right? We're looking for the man, Jesus of Nazareth. They don't say we're looking for Jesus, this guy who's claiming to be the Messiah, who's claiming to be God. They don't say that. We're looking for Jesus, the God guy, the religious guy. No, we're looking for a man, Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Jesus respond with? Jesus says, I am. Now, your, your version in the English says, I am he, right? In the original Greek, that pronoun he is not there, okay? In the original Greek, it just says, ego me, I am. So when they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus' answer literally translates, he says, I am. Now, for, for some of you that might be kind of Bible nerds, 
you'll know that this is Jesus hearkening back to an interaction that Moses has directly with God at the burning bush, right? So, so God manifests himself and communicates to Moses way back in the Old Testament. And he tells Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to go to the Egyptians and I want you to tell them, let my people go. I want you to, I want you to free my people. And Moses is like, well, who should I say sent me? What name should I give for you who sent me? And God says to Moses, tell them that I am sent you. I am. Not I was, not I will be, but tell them that I am has sent you. And so when Jesus is saying to them, I am, okay, what Jesus is saying is, I am that God. I am God. I'm not just Jesus of Nazareth, the man. I am Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the God, right? All other prophets say, I will show you the way to live. I will show you the way to God. But Jesus is the only one who comes along and says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I'm not going to show you the way to truth or the way to God or the way to truth. I am that. I am. And Jesus, so Jesus is 1,000% making a God claim here. You know, there's people that will say, Jesus never explicitly said that he was God. Yes, he did. This is one of those cases. And by the way, this is why they're so ticked off and why they're trying to crucify him. Because they're saying he's making claims that he's God. This is blasphemy. We, we've got to uh, take this guy and kill him. So that's what's happening when he's saying, I am. That's what he's communicating. I am God. Now, something weird happens. Uh, it says that when he says, I am all of these soldiers who were there, and by the way, uh, we don't know the exact number of them, but we know it wasn't like three or four. Uh, we also know that it wasn't like 10,000. Um, you know, there's scholars that think it could have been as many as 500. That seems kind of a lot. And then there's some that think that it maybe was as few as like 50 to 75, but it wasn't like four, okay? It's a band of soldiers with clubs and swords. And I mean, these are soldiers, that have come to arrest Jesus, let's just call it 50, all right? Conservative estimate. And so when Jesus says, I am, something weird happens and they all just crumble to the ground. It's like, what is going on there? Well, we don't really know. It's kind of a mystery. We don't know exactly what is going on there. But what we do know is that they came looking for Jesus the man, and when Jesus just gives them the name of God, just utters his name alone, it levels them to the ground. They're flattened. Just by speaking his name, there's power in his name alone that they just crumble to the ground. He's in absolute control. With a word, he levels them. Total boss move, total control. And then Jesus starts giving orders to them. It's like, wait, they're, they're here to arrest you. And he's like, all right, you're here to seek me? Cool, let these ones go. Let my followers go. If you're here to arrest me, arrest me. I'll go peacefully. Let these go. And it says that this was to fulfill uh, what he had said, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. 
so he's hearkening back to the, the words that he had said in John 6, verse 39, and he, where Jesus said, And this is the will of him who sent me, God, that I should lose not one of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So he's in total control. Total, absolute control. And then, and then Peter, one of his disciples, who has something to prove because Jesus had just told him, hey, you're going to betray me. And Peter is like, I will never betray you, Jesus. Peter, you're going to betray me three times. You're going to deny me three times before the night is over. And Peter's like, no, I will never do that. One of the signs that we know that Peter was really trying hard not to enter into the, whatever denial or betrayal of Jesus is that he's carrying a sword, right? Peter, we don't see Peter carrying a sword anywhere else. But suddenly to, on this night, Peter is carrying a sword. Why? Why is Peter carrying a sword? Well, things around Jesus had begun to get kind of heated up. They knew, everyone knew that, you know, there were those that didn't look kindly on Jesus and they were looking to arrest him, maybe even looking to kill him. And so Peter, probably knowing all of this, is like, all right, fine, I'm going to prove it to Jesus. I'm going to wear my sword. And when those guys come for him, I'm going to be ready. And I'm going to show Jesus how much of a devoted follower I am. And so Peter, probably emboldened by seeing you know, Jesus' Jesus's command and, and people falling at a word, Peter is like, this is it. Here's the moment that I've been waiting for. And Peter pulls out his sword, and he's used to kind of casting casting fishing rods or nets or something, so he's not that good. And he goes and swings for a guy's head and, uh, you know, gets Malchus's ear. Poor Malchus. And, um, and, you know, John doesn't tell us this, but the other Gospels kind of paint a fuller picture of what happens between Jesus and Peter. And Jesus is like, Peter, stop. Stop what you're doing. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Put your sword away. And he tells Peter, Peter, right now, at this very moment, I have legions of, of angels. He says 12 legions. I have 12 legions of angels on standby waiting for my word. All I have to do is say it. And I've got 70, that, that by the way, is 72,000 angels. It's like, Peter, I'm in total control. I don't need your sword. Verse 11 says, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus knows what he's doing. He knows what's going to happen. He is in total control of this event. So what does Jesus do with his total control? Right? So does he use laser vision to just zap all of his enemies? And they're all done for and vanquished. And then he sets up a wonderful kingdom, right? And that's, that's no, that's not what happens. He uses his total control for total love for everyone. For his friends, for his disciples, for Judas, for his enemies, the people that are there to arrest him. He uses his total control for total love. And John and the gospel, other gospels go out of their way to show this as well. Matthew 26, verse 50, has Jesus greeting Judas. When Judas comes up to give the betrayer's kiss, the Judas kiss, Jesus calls him friend. Friend. The man who is there to betray him, he says friend, and greets Judas with friend. Now, we can either believe that Jesus is just lying 
He doesn't really see Judas as a friend. He's just being polite. Or we can believe in the good faith Jesus that actually sees Judas as a friend and not an enemy. And he calls him friend. By the way, both Judas and Jesus would be dead before the weekend's end because of what Judas was doing right there in that moment. This is the last time they're ever going to talk. Judas doesn't have another word, another encounter with Jesus after this. And Jesus calls him friend. The love, the grace that he's giving to a man who has just betrayed him should blow our minds. Again, I'll mention it again, but Jesus orders that his friends, the disciples, be let go. That's Jesus looking out for his friends. Hey, this is about me dying, not about them. So he preserves their lives and says, let them go. That's love. Jesus heals Malchus, the soldier who's there, to seize him by force. And, and Jesus immediately stoops down and picks up this guy's ear and, and heals it. Right? I, if, if I'm Jesus, I'd be like, this is karma. You know, well, you come, you come up against God and you try to do me in. Well, sometimes bad things happen, don't they, Malchus? Guess you learned your lesson on which side you should be on, huh? No, Jesus doesn't give him a lesson or tell him like, hey, this is just karma. Jesus shows grace, heals a man who is there to do him wrong. And then, of course, all of Jesus' friends, all of his disciples, the people that were closest to him, they all abandon him. They all leave him there. And Jesus doesn't say, well, fine, back to heaven I go. If even my closest friends and followers can't keep up, then what am I doing here? Time for me to move on. No, he shoulders their sins the sin that they're committing right there, and he takes it with him to the cross. So here's the thing about Jesus. He's the only total control that you can trust because he's the only one who can totally love with that total control. We've been programmed, right, to despise those who are uh, in control because we've never seen it done right. We just, we've never seen it except... In Jesus. I tried my hardest. You know, I'm the guy that likes to share illustrations and stories. And I was trying my hardest to try to find a context in our world today where we, where we see enormous control and enormous power and enormous, you know, yeah, just control melded with love and grace and seeing this fleshed out. And I was racking my brain all week and I'm like, I can't find it. I cannot find a context in where we see overwhelming control and power manifesting in a way that loves human beings, except in the person of Christ. He's the only one who uses complete control in the service of everyone except for himself. So how do we respond to such a Jesus? How do we respond to such a Jesus as his disciples, as his followers, I think that we would like to say, like Peter, man, that's the kind of Jesus. I like that kind of Jesus. Yes, amen to that kind of Jesus with total control and total uh, power and total love. I will never abandon that kind of Jesus, we might say. I will never leave that kind of Jesus. And I think, um, like Peter, we are so very not self-aware of how we deal with this kind of a Jesus, the Jesus that is total control and total love. 
How did the disciples respond to this kind of Jesus? Because they had been walking with Jesus for three years. They had seen his total control. They had seen Jesus with a word, change the weather. They had seen Jesus with a word, heal people and show great love. How do the disciples who have a probably a more profound understanding of Jesus' total control and total love, how do they respond to such a Jesus? Fight or flight? Fight or flight. That's, or fight and flight, I guess, is what we're seeing here in this text. Fight and flight. All of Jesus' disciples from, from that moment until this moment right here, all of Jesus' disciples tend to default to a certain kind of response to this kind of a Jesus. Fight for Jesus or flight, run away from him. Just, and we all fall into this pattern, by the way. Uh, I'm a person that likes to take control. Anybody else that's a little bit of a control freak? It's okay, it's church safe, we can, we can admit that, right? Anybody else that kind of a control freak? Uh, I, I, I'm someone who defaults a little bit to that fight response. Like, give me the control. Give me human agency. Uh, there, was a, there was a case where um, I should have known better, right? I should have known better, but there was a case where a, few, a few, couple years ago where as a student pilot, I uh, had had some experience. I'd had you know, enough time flying where uh, they were finally getting to the point where they're like, yeah, you can go out and you can fly by yourself. You know, I'd achieved all of the different tests and standards to go out and fly by myself. So occasionally I'd go out and I'd rent an airplane and I'd fly it around here. I'd fly over my house. I would text my wife, text and fly at the same time. I would text my wife and I'd say, hey, I'm going to fly over the house. Come on out with the kids and wave at me and I'll say hi. And they would come out and I'd wave at them and then I'd fly away and have fun, you know. And so I was feeling pretty confident about my skills. And uh, well, you know, but I wasn't a pilot. And so uh, I still had to have... Uh, an instructor fly with me from time to time to help me in my training. So I, uh, on one day, it was a nice, beautiful day, I show up at my scheduled time, and I have two different flight instructors, one's uh, a man and one's a woman. This particular day, I was flying with uh, this gentleman who was a very experienced pilot. And uh, so he's going to take me out and he's going to train me. And so we do all the pre-flight checks. We do everything as we're supposed to. We get in the airplane. We taxi. Again, do all everything textbook as it should be done. And we go to take off. So I, he's, he's kind of just relaxed. He's not, uh, I'm not a new pilot at this point. So he's, he's relaxed. He's casual. He's not hovering over the controls like they do for, for a new uh, student. He's just kind of slouched back in his chair, just saying like, hey, do this, do that. So I'm like, okay. So I give the plane full power and we go to take off. And we're a couple hundred feet into the air, still kind of over the runway. And all of a sudden, my engine goes from having full power to about 70% power. And I didn't do that. It did it by itself. And so I've still got my hand on the throttle, and it's full power, and instantly we're, lo we're losing power. And we're only a couple hundred feet above the runway. And so I don't know if you guys know this, but newsflash, you can't turn around that, like, just oh, we're a couple hundred feet above the runway, we're just going to turn around and land, land again. You don't do that, that's a way of dying. You stall an airplane and die. So I'm immediately thinking, oh, like we're going to end up in the river today uh, because that's the only thing that I've got in front of me. I can go left and end up in downtown Middletown. Uh, you know, I can go right and end up in some trees or maybe you know, we'll end up in the river here. And so the power cuts out. My instructor immediately says to me, 
um, what did, why'd you cut power? And I said, I didn't, because uh, he kind of wasn't paying attention. You know, he's just kind of chilling there. And, and uh, he's like, why'd you cut power? I didn't cut power. And immediately he says, my controls. He's taken over controls, my controls. And I kind of wanted to say, no, my controls. We're, we're going to turn around and we're going to go land right now. He goes, my controls. <sighs> you know how hard that was? So, okay, fine. Let go. Let him take control of the airplane. And he circles it back around. And then right before the landing, he's like, all right, I think we're going to be safe. You can have controls and land the airplane. But that's me, right? I, sh I should have known better. Here's an experienced pilot next to me. I should have immediately said, as soon as that happened, uh, we've got a problem. Can you take over the controls? I didn't want him to take controls. I wanted agency, you know? And so there's some of us who are like that and are like, yes, that's me too. I, I want to fight for the control. That's what I want. I want to take control. And then there's others of you that might be the other end and you're like, you're crazy for getting an airplane to begin with, right? Like, I don't want that. I'm going to run away from it all. I'm not going to be fight. I'm going to be flight away, run away, right? So we tend to default to one of these, to fight or flight in relation to a Jesus that is total control and total love. And here's how this works. When we understand Jesus's control, but not his love, we fight. And when we under, understand Jesus's love, but not his control, we flight, we run. When I understand Jesus's control and his design for this world, but I lack in an understanding of his love, I begin to see enemies in the world. I begin to see an us versus them dynamic that plays out. It's us versus the world. You know, the, the Christian martyrdom complex that we have here in America. We're so persecuted, even though like out of all of human history, we're like the least persecuted Christians ever. We're like, we have such a martyrdom complex. It's us versus the world. It's us versus them, right? And when, I, when people don't line up with our politics or our sexual ethic or our Christian dogma, then there's a sense in which we can kind of convey to them, well, then you guys can just go to hell, like literally, like fine. Don't want to accept, don't want to accept Jesus, don't want to accept us, then you can just go to hell. This is Westboro Baptist Church. I don't know if you guys are familiar with, if you've ever heard of Westboro Baptist Church, you can look them up on YouTube, don't recommend it. But these are vile, vile people who find people who are against them who are other, who are, you know, God's enemies, and they literally will go to their funerals, like the funerals of LGBTQ plus individuals, and they will pick it at the funeral. For real. They'll hold up signs, they'll put the person's name and picture burning in flames, and they'll like celebrate the death and the death of that person, the demise of that person. It's really sad and terrible. And while we might look at them and go, oh my word, wag our heads, like how could you do that? How could you do that? How often though have I also looked at the world with a sense of disgust rather than a broken heart? How often have I inwardly celebrated when my enemies, the people who don't believe and think like I do, when they go down? How often have I harbored the seeds of hate and anger towards those who are against me? This is not the Jesus way. 
This is not the Jesus we're seeing here today. This is a Jesus who's going to the cross for his enemies. While we were yet sinners, his enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus prays forgiveness over his enemies. Father, forgive them. The people that are crucifying me, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus says to turn the other cheek to those who strike. I have disagreements with a lot of people regarding sexual ethic, political ethic, moral ethic. But if I view all of these people as my enemies that I need to conquer, that I need to subjugate, that I need to have control over, if I begin to function in that way, then I'm not relating to them in the way in which Jesus relates to them. And this is really frustrating for me and for all of us who maybe lean conservative in our theology and worldview. We tend to struggle with this part of Jesus. A Jesus who's in control, yes, but a Jesus who uses that control entirely for the good of those who hate him. And then there's the other side. There's those of us who do get Jesus' love, but we don't love Jesus' control. We get itchy with the things Jesus says sometimes, right? Because Jesus says some really hard, dogmatic things sometimes that, that make those of us who are in the love crowd, but we kind of get itchy with his control, with his power, with his bossness, right? We get itchy with a little bit of that, especially when Jesus says things like, hey, anyone who has looked on someone else with lust in their heart, yeah, you've committed adultery with them already. We're like, I mean, come on, Jesus. Do you got to say something crazy like that? That indicts all of us, right? That gets, that gets all of us, Jesus. And there's a few here in this room that are like, well, that didn't get me. I have a pure mind. And I would remind you that Jesus also says that lying is a sin. <laughs> Jesus says hard things, ridiculous things. Jesus says, said to a man, had the audacity to say to a man, hey, um, you want to follow me? You want to be a Christian? Yes, I do, Jesus. That's wonderful news. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to take everything you have and sell it. Are you with me? You're going to just give it away to the poor, and then you're going to come and follow me, right? Do any of us blame this guy that's like, I don't know if I can do that. Like, I think, I swear that if Jesus was to appear right here today and ask us, hey, if you guys sell everything you have, uh, and, and give it away, then you can come follow me. I think most of us would try to negotiate like, well, Jesus, see, I mean, isn't there a way that I can care for the poor, follow you, and have all of my cool stuff? Yeah, right? I mean, Jesus just says some crazy things. And so there are some of us who maybe lean more liberal in our theology and worldview, and we tend to struggle with this part of Jesus. A Jesus who loves, yes, but a Jesus who is in control and in charge and the boss and calls the shots. And a Jesus like that draws the attention of the world and sometimes not in a good way with the really dogmatic hard things that he says. And we tend to run away from a Jesus that is in control and demands total obedience because it just makes us feel uncomfortable, right? It makes us, it makes us just uncomfortable to relate to a Jesus like that. It's a dangerous Jesus. And one of the ways you can tell that you might be the type of disciple that defaults to fight 
is when you find yourself being angry at a world of sinners instead of heartbroken for a world of sinners. When you find yourself being angry for, at the world of sinners as opposed to being heartbroken, that's probably the sign that you're the fight Christian. And one of the ways you can um, tell that you might be the kind of disciple who defaults to flight or running away is when you find yourself heartbroken for a world of sinners but never able to say the hard truths to the world of sinners. That's the paradox of Jesus. We see such this, this wide paradox in Jesus that gets all of us, that makes all of us uncomfortable. On one hand, you have a Jesus that is so righteous, so holy, so in control, so powerful. I mean, think of the most judgmental person you've ever met. Take a moment. Think, put in your mind somebody who's really, really judgmental, okay? Now, Jesus is way more judgmental, way more judgmental than that person. I mean, you do not measure up at all. Jesus is way more judgmental towards your life, towards your sin, than anybody you've ever met. That's, that's one hard truth that's hard for some of us. But then on the other side, Jesus is also way more loving, way more merciful, way more forgiving, way more gracious than anyone you've ever met. It's, it's this weird, these far, these dynamic realities, this paradox that we see in him. You'll never measure up to him and also, he did not come to condemn you. That's what he says, right? I, I didn't come into this world to condemn the world, but I want the world to be saved through me. So Jesus has this wide dynamic range that we struggle with. And a lot of times what we're doing as Christians is we try to rein in this range, this extreme holiness, this extreme control, this extreme power versus this extreme grace. We try to like compress it in a little bit to narrow it up so it's not so extreme, so we don't have this extreme Jesus. You know, we try to tame it a little bit. And so one of the ways that we try to do that with like his control and with his holiness and with his power is we try to say, yeah, but you know what? We can become good people, you know? We can work really, really, really hard and be really, really disciplined in our own power and our own strength. We can spiritually mature ourselves. Like, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Right? Anybody else that's like, no, I, I am a good person. And it's like, are you? Or are you actually trying to rein in God's holiness so that you don't feel so bad about yourself? Or are you trying to rein in God's grace so that it's kind of okay for you to judge people? Right? Like, yeah, you can take, yeah, there's love and grace of God, but it's not that extreme, you know? Like, it's not that, like, you... It's not, it doesn't hit, hit everybody. It doesn't cover everybody. I mean, do you know who they voted for? Do you know what they do in the bedroom? Do you know what they believe? Right? These are the words, by the way, these things are things that were actually said to Jesus. When a woman is worshiping at his feet and she's crying and she's cleaning Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair and she's kissing his feet with her lips. And you know what all the disciples say? All the good Christian people say? Jesus, do you know what kind of woman that is? Do you know where she's been with that body that's touching you? This is, this is what 
Christians do. There's no hate like Christian love. It's true. It's true. But you know what? Jesus isn't going to let himself be compressed or reined in. He's going to be extremely holy, extremely in control, total control, and he's going to be totally gracious. He won't let himself be reined in. And the question for us today is, are we going to follow that Jesus? This Jesus that makes us uncomfortable with his total control and his total love. Jesus asks them a question twice. Whom do you seek? And they say, we're, we're looking for Jesus, the man. And he says, I am, meaning I'm God. You're not, you didn't find Jesus, the man. You found Jesus, the God. This is what I look like. And Jesus is saying to them, and I think to us, you realize that I am the one you've been looking for all along, right? You've been searching for someone who is in total control, but also someone who's total love. You've been searching for someone who sees all of you, all of your garbage, all of your mess, all of your sin, you've been looking for someone that sees you to the bottom and exposes you to the bottom and also says, I love you to the bottom and I'll fix you to the bottom. That is the Jesus that we see here today. And here's why I think it's so important for us to understand this kind of Jesus, the kind of Jesus that where we don't measure up, but the kind of Jesus where we also are not condemned, where we're loved. Here's why. C.S. Lewis wrote this uh, wonderful book. C.S. Lewis is my favorite author. Dan has Tolkien. I have C.S. Lewis. Uh, and uh, so, so I'm always doing C.S. Lewis. Uh, and C.S. Lewis wrote this uh, amazing book called The Screwtape Letters. Anybody ever read that, The Screwtape Letters? Phenomenal book. Okay, so you guys are fairly familiar with the premise, but for those of you that haven't read the book, here's the premise. You've got two demons, okay? And the, the, it's the perspective of the demonic world. And so Lewis is writing as Screwtape. And Screwtape is mentoring this newer demon, this more inexperienced demon called Wormwood. Okay? And so Screwtape is writing these letters back to, to Wormwood saying, here's what you should be doing. Here's how you should be handling this person. Um, here's how you are going to uh, construct the downfall of this human being. And so Wormwood pretty uh, right away as an inexperienced demon gets it wrong by letting his person become a Christian. So already Screwtape's not real happy with Wormwood, you know, that, that uh, this person has become a Christian. But, uh, you know, not all is lost. And so Screwtape is writing to Wormwood saying, hey, there's still a couple of approaches here. You've got two approaches that could end up in the demise of this Christian and then you've got another one, a third approach, that if this happens, it's the end. You might as well just walk away, pack your bags, go find somebody else because it's a lost cause. So he says, here's, here's what you can do. Um, one of the things you can do is you can really encourage this Christian to be good. And you support them in this. You don't try to tempt them. In fact, you try to encourage them to go to church and to read their Bible and to be a good Christian. And then, once they are aware that they're a really good Christian, you remind them of this. And, and let, make sure that they know how good of a Christian that they are. And what's going to begin to happen is there's going to be a pride that wells up inside of this person. And that's perfect. 
because that's the worst sin and they're totally blind to it. So you've, you've derailed this Christian by getting them to fall into the greatest sin, the sin of pride. So that's, that's one tactic you could use. The other tactic that you can use is the opposite of pride. It's despair. It's where you go after this person and just tempt them constantly. When they sin and they get down in the mud, you just don't relent. You just keep going after them until their life is just nothing but sin and they, and they will end up in a despairing place where they say, you know what? What is Christianity doing here? I'm not a better person than I was. I'm a worse person than I was. I'm going to give it up. And so he's like, that's what you want. You want pride or despair. But he says, but you got to be careful because both of those, pride and despair, are when the person is turned inward, when they're looking at themselves. But never, ever, ever let them get a clear picture of Jesus. Don't let them get a clear picture of Jesus, Wormwood, is what Screwtape is saying. Because if they do, then what, the, what will happen, and the sign that they've got a clear picture of Jesus is this. They're going to sin, and they're going to get up, and they're going to dust themselves off, and they're going to look at the grace of Jesus, and they're going to keep on following. And then you're going to tempt them again, and they're going to sin, and they're going to fall, and they're going to get back up, and they're going to dust themselves off, and they're going to keep following Jesus because they understand that, yes, the God has a high standard for them, but also that he gives them unconditional, unlimited grace. And watch out for that kind of a Christian. Because when you have that kind of a Christian that's so focused on the real Jesus, it's game over. It's game over. You won't be able to get them to fall into pride or despair. And that is the reality that we are all invited into. Not a fight, not a flight, not a pride where we impress Jesus, and not a runaway in despair from Jesus. We're invited into focusing our attention on the real Jesus who doesn't want you to perform or hide. A Jesus where you don't have to impress him or fear him. If you don't know that Jesus, uh, in a moment um, after I pray, me and the other pastors are going to be in the side room. I would love to talk with you and pray with you and introduce you to that Jesus. Um, or maybe you're here today and you're coming into an awareness that your default is fight or flight uh, as you relate to Jesus. And if, if that's true for you, um, then... We're going to have communion here in a moment, and you're going to be invited to come forward. And I would just say, encourage you to confess that to, to God, to say, Lord, I've been defaulting to fight or flight in relation to you. Help me see the full picture of who you are and embrace that. And uh, one last thing, just a little pastoral thing. One of the things that was said to me uh, over the last couple of weeks is I've come to a realization that there are several Christians here today who do not feel... Um, that they can take communion because they don't feel worthy, because they feel like um, they have a profound sense of their own inadequacy. And so I've, I heard that there might be some of you who don't want to come forward because you just feel profoundly unworthy. You have a sense of your own inadequacy. You feel like you haven't dealt with your sin. And if that's you, friend, here's what I would say. <laughs> that's the whole point of communion is that you haven't dealt with your sin and that Jesus is the one who deals with your sin. And what we do each week isn't make ourselves holy so that we can approach God. That's not what's going on up here. 
what we're doing each week is, is broken people coming forward in their sin and unworthiness and saying, Lord, I'm coming to you because this is who I am. I'm broken and I need your body and I need your blood to cover me. I need your grace. Okay, so if you are a Christian that has felt unworthy to come forward and take communion, what I would say is that the only fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him. So come forward, fall at the throne of grace, and receive the grace that is here for you. The band is going to come play. Uh, there's going to be a station to my left and to my right where you can come and you can take a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine or juice as your conscience permits. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a God who is not in chaos, isn't taken by surprise. You're a God who's in total control and in total love. And Father, I confess that I don't know what to do with a, a Jesus like that. Sometimes I feel like I've got to prove something to you. And sometimes I feel like I have to run away and hide. Lord, help us to see that, yes, your standards are high and your calling is high, but also that you love us and you've shown us grace. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you and has seen a glimpse of you today, just a picture, and they're willing to talk with us as pastors, Lord, that you'd give them the courage to come talk with us and um, talk about you, talk about the Jesus that we know. And Lord, I also pray if there's any Christians here that are struggling with their feelings of inadequacy, of not being worthy, of not having dealt with their sin, that they would run and not walk to communion today and know that your body and blood covers them. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org.